0: Again, it is good to see everybody this morning. We have several visitors with us, and I know that uh, one of the visitors that's with us today I have prayed for in my own prayer time, and it is a pleasure to see you this morning. Thankful that you are here. Uh, That would be Lauren's mom and dad are here, I guess, I assume. And we are so thankful that you are here, uh, and it is a blessing to uh, see answered prayer uh, sitting in the front row. How about that? Uh, If you want more details, you can talk to Lauren afterwards. We won't make a big deal about this, but we also have some other visitors with us. We're thankful that you're here today. Uh, We hope that you will be encouraged by the word. We're in Revelation, turning your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 2, and we also have a newlywed uh, in our midst, or a couple of newlyweds, and uh, y'all make sure you say hi to Nicole, uh, Josh's uh, new bride. Uh, So, we are excited that y'all are here, and y'all make sure you uh, welcome her uh, to our church. So, all that said, take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 2. One of our nursery workers uh, was uh, sick this morning, so I had the great pleasure of serving in the nursery this morning with Brenda. And it fits perfect with the message Because I got to experience our toddlers uh, interacting with each other. If you ever had any doubt about the total depravity of mankind, take a nursery roll. That's what you need to do. Uh, While they can be very cute and funny and adorable and say really sweet things, they also can be very, very nasty. Uh, As I noticed... As one of them went to try to bite down on my son again today, uh, but which is fine. Uh, he's gotten used to it. He has bite marks all over his body, which is fine. Uh, he is learning uh, that this is a cruel world and that you need uh, a savior. Uh, you need someone that can help you in this wicked, wicked world. We've seen it as we're going through our Bible reading, too. We're doing a chronological read through the Bible, uh, some of us here. And we're seeing it in uh, from Genesis all the way through Job that we already read and into Abraham's life and Hagar and uh, then you get in and this week we've been dealing with Jacob, <laughs> the, the deceiver, and how he uh, just turned on his brothers and treated them horribly or his brother Esau and then it just kind of filters down into the family and all of his children. It has been a... Uh, A a reminder of the depravity of humanity. So, we live in this same world, folks. The same way that humans are then, in Genesis, as recorded in Genesis, is the same way that it's going to be revealed today in our passage as we deal with the church in Pergamum. They dealt with a culture and a society that was, uh, for lack of a better term or phrase, Totally depraved, they had a lot of problems, and it is no different for us. So we're going to see today that this message is applicable to us, which is great. At the same time, despite our culture, how bad it is, and all the things that go around us, and the total depravity that we're constantly dealing with, that gives us no excuse for falling into the same behavior. God calls us to be different. We're going to see this in the church and the letter and the words that Jesus gives to the church in Pergama. Let's read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 down through verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergama write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My witness. My faithful one. Who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to Put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that as we look at it, that you will help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, also to be changed by your word. And, Father, we pray that this will not just be an exercise of education, but rather it will be an exercise of life change, that your word will impact our hearts and that we will leave this place different and reminded of longing to be an overcomer and to trust you and to be faithful to you until the end. We pray that we will learn and we will then do as you say. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. The question is, how are we supposed to live in light of the wickedness that we live in? and in, in this world that we live in. How are we supposed to live in light of our saving relationship with the Lord Jesus? The short answer would be we're supposed to be different. Or lights in this wicked world. We're called to be different. Because we know the one who has The sharp two-edged sword. That's what we're going to see today. The background of our passage, and just to get you into where we're at, again, this is the second main section of the book of Revelation. Jesus has given seven addresses to seven churches in Asia at that time. This is the section that is called the things which are. It's the second main section of the book. We have looked at the first two churches. We saw the church in Ephesus was described as the scripturally savvy but loveless church in Ephesus. Then we saw last week the suffering servants who needed an eternal perspective in light of the suffering they were incurring at Smyrna. Now, give you, to give you a little background on per, in Pergamum, on the church in Pergamum, again, we see that, and as I've studied these cities and these cultures, I've noticed something. We look at our culture often, and y'all probably have done this, I have. I look at the TV or I see the culture and I say, oh, we're especially wicked here. There's horrible things going on around our, we see it on the television, there's these horrible things. Well, as I've been going through these letters, you know what I have found, found? There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> there's wickedness and it's been rampant from the beginning. Right from Adam and Eve, wickedness is there. And we see it again in this city, in Pergamum there were several temples. There were temples to the god of Zeus and Athena and Dionysus and Asclepius. Now this, uh, these temples. A matter of fact, the one to Zeus was called. He was called the Savior God, and it was an especially large temple. And then there was this uh, temple to this uh, goddess or the god of. It's called. His name was called Asclepius. It's A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-S. And you say, what's the significance? Well, we get one of our major symbols, a symbol that we would all know from this God. Who can guess what it is? Anybody? Uh, Our medical doctor in the back, our soon-to-be medical doctor. It's the serpent. Right, the medical symbol of the serpent comes from this God. And it's in there. It's on the, the symbol. It's the same God that they worshipped here. The symbol was often... It's often seen on our medical facilities. The idea spread through Pergama And they had these snakes in this temple. Yeah. All the ladies in the room go, Ooh, gross. <coughs> yeah. If you were sick, you were it needed healing, you would go and sleep in this temple at night. And if one of the non-poisonous snakes touched you in the night then you would get healed was the speculation so you have all these non-poisonous snakes filled up and that's where we get that medical symbol of the snake and its association well it all came from Pergama. it's also uh, home of one of the famous physicians galen and then also there was another thing that it was famous for it was famous for a gigantic library well, the second largest library in that time. It's where the uh, writing material that was used at that time came next to the papyri, which was in Egypt. The, the, the uh, parchment was made in Pergamos. So it was a very educated area, even though they had this temple and they thought that people could get healed by snakes. It was an educated area. All that said, it was just like all the others. And one of the major issues in this town or this area was emperor worship. It was the first place in Asia that was known for building three temples to other emperors. So people would come there and worship the emperor of Rome, and it was the thing to do at that day, especially in Pergamum. Today we're going to see that Christ gives a message to this church, and this message is stay faithful despite your circumstances. Let's look at these aspects. We see there's five aspects of Christ's message here to the church in Pergamon. These five aspects should be encouragement for all of us to live a Christ-honoring life. First, notice, Christ reminds them of his just authoritative word. He reminds them of his just and authoritative word. That's found in verse 12. And to the angel, which is the messenger, as we mentioned before, of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Again, as we've seen in the other letters, Before Jesus speaks to the church, he brings up a characteristic or an attribute of himself before he talks to him. correct? He's done this in both of the other two uh, paragraphs, and now he does it again with the church in Pergamum. Here he references the vision in chapter 1, look in your Bibles, over at 116. 116. In that first vision that John saw in the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus... Jesus descri- or John describes what he saw, and he says this. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he references this attribute or this aspect of who he is. Again, this draws, it, there's a little bit of a difference. Notice back in verse 12, it doesn't say it came out of his mouth. But there's a little article that you might not even see an article is like the and a y'all know articles right you look the one who has the sharp two-edged sword you might think well that's no big deal there's an article there well actually in the greek the point is is when you add the article it's usually referencing to something that was previously mentioned and in this case that's what he's talking about this is the same one as mentioned back in one sixteen. He's bringing back this concept of the sword that came out of his mouth. And as we noted last time, or when we were in that section, what this points to is that when Christ speaks, he speaks with authority and what? Judgment. Literally, he is the just judge who pronounces judgment. Literally, Christ is the just judge who pronounces judgment. So ultimately, he's calling the church in Pergamum to what? Remember again that Christ is more than just the lamb. He's also the warrior lamb, the just judge. Again, the propensity of humanity is to do what with God? To make God in our own image. To think of God and put him in a box that we can accept. Here Jesus reminds him, look, I am the one who is the just judge. Who when I speak, I pronounce judgment and it happens. Remember, this will be developed later on in Revelation 19. When one little word will fell the evil one, right? He will speak and it will be over. From the hymn of Martin Luther, remember? A mighty fortress is our God. One little word will fell him. The evil one will be put to an end because of Christ speaking, pronouncing judgment. Again, a fear of God is not produced by just giving rules. It is, It comes by knowing the one who gives the commands. You must understand And have a high view of God. This is the same thing he's reminding them here. That God is, Christ is, the just judge who pronounces judgment. And this is no different for Jesus. Here he reminds them of this truth. Look, what is it that motivates us to be different from the world? One of the motivations is a proper view of God. If you understand that God is holy that God is just, that God is righteous, then we will what? Distinguish ourselves out of our loving obedience to the Father from the world. Let me ask you a question. Would you say that you can distinctly tell who are the Christians that you're around in your workplace? And can you tell the difference? Is there a difference? I have to admit um, just hanging out on campus, it's very hard to tell a distinction, unfortunately. And I would venture to say the reason behind often that reason is that the kids, when they're around their folks, their folks are reminding them of what? Having a high view of God, who God is. But when they get away, who are they thinking about? Only themselves. And they put God in the box that they allow that allows for them to do what? Whatever they want. The reality here, he's talking to the church in Pergamon and he says, Listen up. You need a proper view of who I am. I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. That when I speak, judgment happens. Know who I am. I'm not just the one who died. I'm the one who's alive and is reigning and ruling. It's very important. Notice the next aspect. Of Christ's message to the church in Pergamum, Christ knows their faithfulness despite their difficult circumstances. He knows their faithfulness despite their difficult circumstances. You see this in verse thirteen. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Jesus highlights here three elements of his knowledge concerning their circumstances first he says he knew where they lived he knew where they lived notice he says i know where you dwell that phrase that term dwell dwell points to the fact that this is their permanent residence of address he knows they live in a corrupt area the phrase the phrases where satan's throne is has been explained several different ways (laughs) Three possibilities seem most probable for me. One of them is the throne of Satan is a reference to Zeus's temple, the temple where that throne, there was a throne area or altar area, and because he was called the Savior God, maybe a reference to the idea that Satan was trying to emulate or take the throne aspect of Christ. Or then you have the one that I mentioned about the the uh, the healing God and how it's related to the serpent and the serpent is therefore related to Satan often in Scripture. Or it could be the idea that it was a reference to the emperor worship that was prominent here. It was the seat of government in Asia at the time. So what's, which one is it? Which one's it referring to? I do want to make a, a, a important side note here and this is important for all of us to get. There are times when we study Scripture, when we come to a spot like this, and I can honestly say I can study historical uh, the historical context and study it and study it and study it. And guess what? There's going to be differences. Um, my three uh, three of my top four favorite Bible teachers took one of those three <laughs> views. Each one of them took a different one. So what do I do? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's one of those and. Here's what we have to know. Though I might not be able to dogmatically say, I think it's this one. I can lean one way or the other. We do know one thing. The reader knew what it was. They understood. When they heard that, they said, oh, yeah, we know exactly what he's talking about. And that's important for us to understand. But we can still have good application from this, right? We know what? That it was an evil place. And that Satan was known to be the authority in that area, in a sense. And he was displaying himself through these numerous different ways of wickedness and evil. This would point to the fact that Satan was often viewed as being the leader, much like in our area, maybe. Um, Some would say, well, maybe New Orleans is worse, or... Uh, San Francisco is worse, or Las Vegas is worse. Well, the reality is, is there's plenty of wickedness to go around in all the places, isn't it? Satan is prominent in his activities. These, This, however, was an especially wicked place. So what, do, what does Jesus do here? Now think about this. He knows where they live. He knows how bad it is. So what he does is he gives them a free pass. Right? It says here, Y'all go ahead, I understand, you struggle with temptation, you know, your area's a little bad, go ahead, you know, if that happens, you know, I understand. No, he doesn't do that. He understands where they live, but he calls them to what? To continue doing the faithfulness that they are doing. And he calls them, eventually, to repent of places where they have been tolerant of the evil in their area. We'll talk about that. Jesus does know our circumstances, folks, and he knows yours, too. And this is important for us to remember again. Again, we have a tendency to think of God as a distant deity, right? Is God a distant deity? No. Does he know what you're struggling with? Absolutely. Does he know your culture? Yes. Does he know where you work? Yes. Yes. Does he know what you're struggling with? Yes. Does he know the temptations you face? Yes. Does he say, well, I know who you are. I'll just let you slide. No. <laughs> I know where you are. Now walk with me. And I understand where you are. And by grace, you can overcome. Walk with me. He knows where they are. Second, he knows how they have responded or they had they, how they had responded to their circumstances. Notice he says, "And you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas." He knows not only where they lived, but also that they had held fast to his name. This concept of holding fast is repeated three times in this passage today. It literally means to take possession of, to grasp tightly. His name, to hold firmly to it, the church as a whole. And that is not every single person in here. As we will see, some did not hold as fast as others. But the vast majority of the church had held firmly to Christ's name. What does it mean to hold firmly to Christ's name? It means literally to hold tightly to who he is and what he's he's done. The person of Christ. The name represented who a person is and what he's done. So holding fast to or holding tightly to Christ is what's referred to here. So this means the church in Pergamum was known for holding tightly to Christ. Hopefully that describes your life, right? Do you hold fast or hold tightly to Christ? Is that you? Hopefully. Despite living where Satan's throne was... These believers held fast or tightly to Christ. This faithfulness is developed further in that second phrase where it says, and did not deny my faith. Again, this carries with it the idea of a moment in time in the past where they did not reject Christ and faith in him. They stayed faithful and committed to Christ. Jesus then begins to unfold more details of this time as he explains what happened during the times of Antipas, even in the days of Antipas. Okay, look, so what happens? Last week we saw in Smyrna, the trial was to come, right? And when the trial was to come, he calls them to hold fast. Here, with Pergamum, he's saying, look, the trial came, the pressure came, and you held fast, and you did not deny Christ. And then he gives details of that. He says, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The church tradition says that Antipas most likely was one of the leaders of the church. And he had held up to this intense pressure and persecution from the government or the governing officials to do this emperor worship in a similar way. So he didn't didn't crack under the pressure. And when he didn't crack under the pressure... What happened? cost him his life. So what do you think the church did when they saw this happening? Well, they held fast too. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you love Scripture to describe our church this way? Wouldn't you love Scripture, God himself, to describe your life this way? Don't you want that? I want that. No matter what the trials or the circumstances in my life, I want to be described by Christ as the one who is my witness, my faithful one. How many of you want that? That's a title described describing Christ himself. Christ is described as the faithful one. How many of you want to be known that way? How many of you? You don't have to raise your hand, but hopefully. Is everybody listening? Do you want to be described that way? I want to be described that way can you do it on your own no it's complete and utter dependence on the Savior right knowing that he and he alone is the only way I can survive in this circumstance right we live in a pretty wicked culture don't we how are we going to survive if trials come and temptations come answer by grace alone in him right we hold on tightly to him, just as these people did. Notice the third element in, that, in the second point. Jesus points to this Antipas, what their fellow brother Antipas had gone through. It appears Antipas could have been one of their leaders, as mentioned. Dr. Thomas says that around this time, the term of being a witness for Christ became so synonymous with being martyred that the word took on this meaning. This is where we get our Greek word or our English word martyr from. It's from that word witness in the Greek. At this time, Dr. Thomas says that this is probably the time when this developed from that concept. It began to be developed. Anybody that was a witness for Christ became synonymous with being what? A martyr. It doesn't happen that way today, does it? I mean, if we're a witness for Christ, hopefully... It doesn't cost us much. Again, I've talked about that. One day it could, though, folks. One day it could. So I want to prepare you for that. I want you to think on these things. Jesus further describes him, like said, as the faithful one. Again, church tradition says that Antipas was literally burned alive in a bronze bull during the days of Dom- Domitian, this emperor In other words, they put him inside of it, some huge bronze bull, and burned him alive on an altar? Can you imagine? Yet, how is he described? And who is he with now? (laughs) Immediately. Oh, that's how I want to be described, though, don't you? It's the one who is faithful no matter what. When faced with trials, we remain faithful to our Lord and Savior. Now, at this point, and it's interesting, they've gone through a really difficult time, a trial stage. It's a stage of refining. You would think at this time, what would you look at the church? You'd say, they got it. They got it. But then comes one of the stiffest rebukes that he's had out of all the three churches so far you've got this church that's remained faithful, yet one of the strongest rebukes coming. What does that speak to? It speaks to the vulnerability of a church at any moment. Right? It speaks to the fact that no matter what the trial, and some of us in this room have probably faced some trials or some difficulties in our life, but it doesn't matter if after you've Past the trial, you then do what? Fall. This overcoming concept is not just one of, okay, we did it. We passed the test. Now we're set. No. It's, guess what? Just around the corner, there's another trial. There may be a temptation. And in this case, we see what happens to the church in Pergamum. They fall into a evil And Christ exposes, third, Christ exposes their tolerance of evil. He exposes their tolerance of evil in verses 14 and 15. Notice, he says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He describes these evil ones that have infiltrated the church. As I was thinking again on this, I I thought, how would you like it if your church was openly exposed for all the world to read about for years to come? (laughs) One thing's for sure. Jesus holds no punches, does he? And ultimately, it really doesn't matter what we think of that church. What matters is what Christ thought of that church. It would be the same way with us. We may have a tendency to think, oh, well, somebody might like our church or might not like our church. Ultimately, whose opinion matters? Christ. What does Christ think about our church? What does he think About our lives. That's what matters, right? And we, when I, as your pastor, stand before the Lord, He's not going to look at me and say, Hey, Mike, everybody in Tampa loved your church. (laughs) All that will matter, Will, everybody in Tampa, it doesn't matter. What did you do with my word? What did you do with the people? And you as believers in the church, what was your participation in that church? What Christ thinks is what matters, right? (laughs) What does he think of your life? Here we see Jesus takes off the boxing gloves (laughs) and he holds no punches. Notice, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now the question would be, are they literally holding to the teaching of Balaam? Who is Balaam? Balaam was mentioned back in Numbers 22 through Numbers 25, and then again in Numbers 31. Balaam was the, for lack of a better term, prophet who came to Balak, the king of Moab. And he, remember Balak says, go and bless the people, or or, or, bring down a curse on the people of Israel, rather. And he has the encounter with the donkey. Y'all remember, and the donkey speaks to Balaam. You'll be hearing this if you come to Sunday school. And Ryan's going to be teaching this in a couple weeks uh, in Numbers 22 through 25. So you need to come. It's really good. And at first glance, you might think, well, Balaam gets it. But then there's this little commentary that happens in in Numbers 31:16, and it describes Balaam as the one who introduced the idea. It says literally, "Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the the congregation of of the Lord. Twenty four. Thousand people died because of a plague because of Balaam. What did Balaam do? He entered or he introduced the idea of marrying with the Moabite women to intermarrying and literally to do sexual fornication and immorality between the two. And to if you got in with the Moab people and you intermingled with them, then you will be able to overtake them because God will then judge them. So he had this idea of, look, we might, can't give this curse because God's not going to allow that. In fact, he blessed them three times instead of the curse. But he said, let's go in the back door. Let's send our women in there. We send our women in there, then they will fall. And God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. So Balaam introduced this heresy and these bad thoughts. Well, What he's doing here and what Jesus is doing is using this as an illustration of the people that he was dealing with in that church. The Nicolaitans had very similar concepts. They were all about sexual promiscuity. And here we see the Nicolaitans were promoting also this idolatry. Notice how this this illustration appears to be Jesus' description of the false teachers. Notice in verse 15, he says, So you also have some who in the same way hold, or hold fast, same word, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The idea, of again, of the Nicolaitans was one of antinomianism. Antinomianism. You need to know what this phrase means. It's an important word. Antinomianism. This is the false teaching that taught participation in idolatry of false religions was okay for the sake of, and key term, compromise. Write that down. Compromise. Everybody understand? Meet them where they're at. So important. Which we all know is what? Impossible. A great description of this false teaching is given by Dr. Thomas. Listen closely. The teaching of these Nicolaitans was an attempt to reach a compromise between Christian life and the culture and customs of the Greco-Roman world. Did you hear that? A compromise between Christian life and the culture. Get that? Very important. With special attention to including as much as possible of the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Now, let me explain a little bit. They had these uh, feasts that they would have to these false gods. And they'd all get together at these feasts and eat this meat that they had sacrificed on a burnt offering to these false gods. And at these feasts, what do you think would happen? Well, use your imagination a little bit. I don't want to get into graphic details, but it became a sexual, horrible display. Well, the Christians had some within the church that were participating in these same activities. Not the all, vast majority, but some. Notice the rebuke is to the whole church for what? Some. That's an interesting thought here. There's a compromise that's going on between the Christian life and the culture of the Customs of that day. This was the problem in the church in Pergamum. They were trying to be both in the world and of the world. Which meant what? They failed to distinguish themselves from the world they lived in. They were attempting to compromise or be tolerant of evil. Did you hear that? Tolerant of the evil in their cultural norms. Look. This led to tolerance of evil practices. The wrong thinking, one could argue, is one step down from the great downgrade of Spurgeon, that Spurgeon called it. One of the evidences that a church is going down that slippery slope of death is they begin to compromise with the culture. And I'm going to bring up an illustration here and just... Take it for what it's worth. This is where I think Mr. Rick Warren missed it this week. Let me tell you why and listen closely. Some of you might say, I love Rick Warren. I like that book, The Purpose Driven Life, Changed My Life and all that. But I want to warn you of something and just want to uh, say that it fits very well into the same mentality. In an effort to be relevant in our society, he failed to distinguish. Now you say, why am I calling out a person? I'm calling out a person because he's in the public. And there's a time for this. He failed to distinguish himself and his church and his ministry from the rest of the world. Now, some of you might have been excited to hear that he prayed in Jesus' name. Yes, that's a wonderful thing. However... I would have been more excited if he would have prayed a prayer much like Daniel prayed for Israel. Right? We are a wretched and wicked, sinful nation that is embracing homosexuality. That needs to repent and call on God to have mercy on us. That wasn't the prayer. It was, here, I want to get in here and be relevant. And be with us. And link everything together. Look, folks... We're not called to be tolerant of evil practices. We're not. We're not supposed to compromise principles of holiness and purity for the sake of being relevant in our culture. This is what he's rebuking them for. He's calling them, be different. Be set apart. Be holy. For I am the one that has the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of my mouth. Be distinct. Tolerance for the sake of unity or compromise for the sake of peace is exactly what Christ is rebuking here in the church of Pergamum. Now, it's important to note, we don't use this passage to promote legalistic agendas for certain types of dress. I'm not going to get on everybody, anybody that doesn't have a dress on today, all the ladies that don't have dresses on, we're in trouble. That's not what this is about He's calling us to be distinct, different, holy, pure, different. And Christ demands what of his bride, ladies and gentlemen? Purity. Purity, that's what he demands. In his church, he doesn't want us to compromise. Just recently a church was... One of our churches of a master's grad was on Fox News and, and the Drudge Report for um, doing uh, uh, church discipline on a lady in their church. That is, that they called on the lady to repent and seeking restoration, yet she wouldn't. Matter of fact, she rejected it and she had moved in with another guy and I think it was even left her husband and all this. Stuff And he calls them, the pastor was kind and gentle and loving and called her to re- repent and turn, and she didn't. And so they had to take her through the steps of church discipline. Well, what she did was got on news. And it became a big public thing that this church is calling me to be somebody that, you know, I I'm still want to go to church. I love this guy. The reality is what? No. Which one are we going to serve? The court of public appeal? Where the public would say, oh, we well, you need to let her keep going. She can still remain a member. No, ladies and gentlemen, we're called to be distinct. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. Folks here, they've allowed false teachers into their church. And in, the, in this case, it was leading, leading to sexual promiscuity. If our lives, folks, include any of this or any idolatry in our lives, ultimately we're in direct opposition to the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, right? We can't allow this. There should be a purity to the bride of Christ. We will deal with this as we go through even the next church that goes even a step further. In the same way, we must know that Christ is not pleased when we tolerate evil in our midst. Now, I want to put a side note, a caveat here. It's in the church. You live in a culture. You got to be careful for those of you that may have roommates or uh, people that you work very closely to. Be careful that if somebody does not have a born-again relationship with Christ and don't profess Christ to be their Savior and Lord, try not to uh, legislate morality or push down morality on somebody that's not a believer. The key to this is is you've got to know the one who has the sharp two-edged sword or purity will not be your goal. Do you understand? That's where I think the guy on campus is really missing the boat. He's screaming at the students that many of them don't know Christ. You're a homo, you're this, you're that, and misses the whole point, which is what? Know the one that's got the sharp two-edged sword, who has also provided a Savior, who came and died and rose from the dead to pay for your sin. Again, in the church purity. Don't expect the world to act perfect, (laughs) Or to be morally good because they're not going to be. We know this. He doesn't say to them, run around your city and yell at these crazies out there that are worshiping a snake. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, purity within my church. That's what's expected. For us that know Christ, this is what we are supposed to do. Tonight we'll look at Christ's exorcism. Exhortation to them to repent and his warning or else he's coming in judgment. And then we'll see the encouragers, how Christ encourages them to overcome with two astonishing promises. We're going to kind of deal with that promises, especially in verse 17. Because I think that it's encouraging for all believers to know the glorious hope that we have in the future. And Christ makes this clear too. It's not just the stick mentality. It's the carrot and the stick mentality. I was talking <laughs> I was talking to Andrew about this this week. He didn't understand the concept of the carrot and the stick. <laughs> I said, I'd much rather give you the carrot, son. I'd much rather give you the carrot, not the stick. I said, why? I like sticks. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea of the carrot and the stick, there's the blessing, the rewards, the joy of following Christ. And the stick is the spanking and the discipline that God can bring for those that are not faithful to him. Okay? In this case, Jesus gives both. For the some, he calls them to repent or else I'm coming to judgment. For the believer, he says, for those who overcome, I will give you great blessing. And we'll talk about that blessing tonight. Okay? All right. For all of y'all, and I would be remiss if I did not do this, listen closely, please. Moral change is not going to happen in your own life without a proper understanding of Christ Jesus. Look, you need Jesus. If you haven't uh, come to the place in your life where you've seen your sin in light of a holy God, today is a great day to repent. That is, to turn to God. Say, I've sinned against you. I need a Savior. I need Christ, the one who came and died in your place. And all of the sin that you've done, God poured out on Christ to pay for your sin. Today is a great day to commit your life to him, the one who has that sharp two-edged sword, but yet is also the one who died and rose from from the dead and can give you new life too. So I say that, I don't know all of our visitors. I want you to know Christ loves you. Despite you, despite me, he loves you, and he came to die for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this grace and goodness that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to the holiness of yourself. Help us to have a proper fear of God. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in light of of your holiness. Lord, help us to be dependent completely on Christ alone for our salvation, our deliverance from this wrath. We trust in you, Christ Jesus. We pray that you will help us to overcome despite our circumstances. And we pray that today will be the beginning, a renewal of our dedication to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.